Welcome to Better Leaders, the podcast, where we surface good leadership and smart management in media and beyond. Today, I'm talking to Jane Barrett, Global Editor for News Media Strategy at Reuters. My name is Anita Zilina, and I'm your host. Welcome to Better Leaders. Jane, wonderful to have you here with me today to record the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much, Anita. Lovely to see you. So what I thought we could start with is you briefly telling us about your current role, about your career for the listeners who are not familiar with you and don't know you. Of course. So um, I now have the very long title of Global Editor for Media News Strategy at Reuters. That's a lot of words. You don't necessarily know what it means. <laughs> but essentially, I run the editorial side of all the new business that we do at Reuters. So anything that isn't the core of the agency, the core text, core video, core pictures, core graphics, comes to me. So I've been looking at our expansion into things like events or into verification, into audio, into AI. And I look at everything to make sure that the innovation that we are doing meets what we call our trust principles. So we have a set of five principles, the second of which says that in everything, we will maintain the independence, integrity, and freedom of bias of our journalism. But number five also says that we will spare no effort to expand, adapt, and develop the services that we provide. So I always joke that I'm a mixture of trust principle two and number five. <laughs> Great. That's a very clear, that's actually a very clear kind of goal setting that, that we have here. <laughs> it's taken some time to get there. And okay. you clarity is very key and I'm very keen on clarity. So it, it's, it's something I've worked on hard to make sure that I have that clarity as well as other people. And what brought you there? Because that's a, that's a complex title and it's a complex role that involves, and we're going to tap into that a bit later, a lot of stakeholder management and a lot of, you know, pushing for innovation and transformation. But what led you there? So I look back at the now more than 20 years in journalism, which is a bit terrifying, and 20, more than 20 years at Reuters, by the way, which is also terrifying. But I always joke that I've actually, I'm on my fifth career within the same company. And so I started off as a reporter, loved reporting. I was a reporter here in London, then Rome, Milan, Madrid, had a great time. But after about 10 years, I really got itchy feet. And I started saying to people, I'm fed up of writing about what other people do and not doing it myself. It's one thing to critique and criticize other people, which is our job as reporters. But if you haven't done it yourself, it just didn't feel that it was quite, it was quite authentic enough for me. And so at that stage, I started looking for something else. And I then had the great opportunity of starting up a financial video service within Reuters. So I kind of moved from pure reporting then into the innovation space. And already I I learned then that even in my 10 years of reporting, I'd been constantly innovating, finding better ways of doing things, finding more efficient processes, finding better ways of, of managing the teams that I was within and the like. And so that's kind of when my move into innovation really mm. started. So then I did a startup within Reuters. As a lot of startups failed, so too this also failed and had to pivot. Um, and so at that point, I went into an editing role. 
and I was the company news editor for Europe, Middle East and Africa. But then doing that, I also started to see things that were wrong in the newsroom. And so I started to agitate for change again. And if you agitate for change, you'd better be ready to take the lead and change things. <laughs> and so the change I, the change I knew that we needed to make was that we were still a very old fashioned agency that we were serving newspapers or broadcasters or financial clients. And in a digital world, all of that is kind of the past present. It's not the future present. Yeah. And it wasn't linked up. We weren't linked up between our visuals reporting and our text reporting. We weren't linked up between our reporting for our media clients or for our website and our, and our financial clients. It was, it was very siloed. And so at that stage, they said, great, you solve the problem, move into transformation. So then I've done reporting, startup, editing, then transformation. And through that, I got to know a lot of brilliant people in the media industry, including your good self, um, <laughs> uh, and really wanted to understand what were our client strategies? What did they need from us? It was one thing for me to have ideas about what we should do, but actually it needs to be rooted really in the business and in what the clients needed us to do. And so through that, then I started working on a lot of the new products that we needed to do. Mm. And then this strategy role came from the transformation role. So I've been sort of agitating for change and innovation kind of throughout my career. And now I get to do it for a living. Yeah, that's amazing. An amazing career story. And uh, so let's talk a little bit about this. Um, agitating for change mm. usually comes comes at the price, at the price that not everyone is potentially immediately crazy excited about someone coming in and saying, we need to change processes. We need to change user perspectives. We need to change workflows. We need to change priorities. So I assume you had and have your fair share of change management or resistance that you're dealing with. Can you talk a little bit about how you throughout the course of your career, deal with change and resistance to change, if this is something you still encounter? Oh, always, right? I think whenever you're changing anything, you're going to encounter change. And I always say to people, think about your own life. I mean, how difficult it is to change something that you want to change in your own house. Yeah. You know, like I've got a really messy study and I keep thinking, I really want to get my study nice and clean. It's still a mess because change takes effort and change takes the desire. You need to feel the need to change. And if I can't even do that to myself as one mm. person, then you know, what yeah. hope do I have of changing a whole newsroom? And so I think it kind of comes back to the fact that whenever you're dealing with change, whenever you're dealing with leadership, you're dealing with people. And so you have to, of course, you'll get frustrated with the people, but you also have to empathize with the people. You have to meet the people where they're at and you have to see how can I get these people to understand what I see? And also, how do I listen to them? Because I might have it wrong, right? So you've got to keep that humility as a leader to listen all the time, as well as communicating the change. And at a certain stage, you have to say, right, well, we're going to do it and we're moving forward and this is how we're going. And that gets into the stakeholder management piece that you were mm. mentioning. Yeah. But I think one of the really useful tools that I was taught about trying to get people to buy into change was a very simple sort of three-point triangle all triangles have three points. Um, <laughs> um, but it was a tool that I was taught on a course that I did in America and it was called DVP and you want dissatisfaction, vision and process. So if people are very comfortable where they are and they think that what we're doing now is perfect, it's fine. Like we don't need to change anything. Yeah. Life is good. 
then they will never change. However brilliant your vision and however brilliant your plan to get there, they'll never change because things aren't so bad now. Mm. So you have to show them why today's way of doing things or today's thing that we do is not good enough. Yeah. But then you also have to give them the vision of how it could be better because mm. otherwise that people just get depressed. So that's not a very nice thing to do to people. So then you have to have the vision and to be able to paint for them what it will look like if we do this, what it will look like for them, what it will look like for the company, what it will look like for journalism, you know, all of these areas of vision. But if you only have those two pieces, then everyone knows that it's rubbish now and that there's a better future, but how the hell do we get there? Yeah. So then you have to have then the process piece so you can tell them, okay, we're going to be going along these steps. Yeah. And by kind of closing that three-point um, triangle, yeah, I, I find that it, it does it does help. When I get stuck with people, it's not that I go in thinking about my triangle all the time, but if I get stuck with somebody or I feel, feel that they're not moving or that they're resisting change or they're the person who's quiet in the corner with their arms crossed or looking at their phone when I'm speaking, you think, okay, I haven't got through to that person yet. What's their pain point or what's their... What's missing? What's missing for them, right? Mm. So it's, it's very easy for leaders to complain about people not doing things. But I always figure if somebody's not doing things, if someone's not buying into the change, yeah. what is it that I've got wrong? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, totally. And sometimes it doesn't work, right? Sometimes yeah. somebody's not going to come along and you have to decide to part ways. You have to decide to, you know, move the person into a different role or whatever. So sometimes yeah. you do get to a point of blockage where it just isn't going to change, right? Mm, totally but hopefully that's the last last chance to yeah so thinking about that that triangle and that's almost like you you know you could speak about the process also as operations and the yep. vision also as strategy and the, yep, um, the satisfaction about like creating the right amount of like a sense of urgency mm -hmm. in a way and making that clear where do you see where is like your natural playing field as a leader because i assume you're good at like navigating all of these elements in the triangle but where is it where do you feel like a fish in the water is it more like the the process and operations side of things is it the <laughs> the strategy and vision part is it the getting out there and kind of creating that sense of urgency and pushing part where do you naturally kind of feel most confident? So um, people couldn't see our video, but as Anita was asking <laughs> if I was the person to process operations, I was shaking my head. Yes, vigorously, <laughs> I might say. <laughs> no, but it's interesting, you know, because I, I'm not a process person. Like when you do the so personality tests, process yeah. always comes down as my lowest priority. But I, I find that really helpful because I know that that's my weakness. So I've actually mm. taught myself a lot of process you know, I've done a lot of work on learning how to use Excel and getting sort of good analysis yeah. out of it or, you know, learning, working with a project manager who will actually take me through the project management tool and show me where we're at because I know that it's not my natural strengths. Yeah. In fact, it's very much my natural weakness. Yeah. So it's really important to build the team around you where you have somebody who does that because yeah. I'm definitely the yeah. fish out of water on that one. So to answer your question about where do I feel in the water... I feel in the water when we're playing with new things. So it's very much the vision piece. Mm. So I joke that I'll have 15 ideas before breakfast and I have to keep shum about them because otherwise I'll drive my team mad <laughs> if I give them all the ideas because they'll go, well, which one do you want us to do? But I think what comes down to my leadership is that I feel that leadership generally, whether it's at work or in your, in your life, in different areas of your life, leadership is about people. 
And so that's kind of where I really get my energy. It's in having the ideas and the vision, but then really working with the people to get there. And so it's kind of having that piece of, of, of the empathy, but also the listening and the communicating, the, the trying to move things along. That's where I feel mm. happens. Does it mean that I get it right all the time? Absolutely not. Mm. But it's vision and people that are kind of the two bits that yeah. I feel the fish in water, as you say. Yeah. So interesting. And, and I, I assume you didn't kind of, you know, wake up when you were 18 and first venturing out into the world of the workforce and journalism and knew that, right? You probably didn't, you know, weren't as reflected, like no one is, right? Absolutely. So how did you, you mentioned, you know, that this execution operations process part, you understood how crucial it is uh, and that it's not kind of your natural flow state. How did you learn that? Did you learn that the hard way? Did you learn it through mentors? Did you learn it through some successes and failures? So I learned it through a card game believe it or not. So you know how you have a moment in your life and it seems it's a very trivial thing, but it brings everything else to life and it makes sense of things. All of a sudden, it's like someone's just turned the the, the lens on a telescope and suddenly yeah. everything's in focus. And it was a card game of motivations. And I think you can get these on Amazon and the likes. You know? So <laughs> you, you, basically, you, you you deal out a deck of cards preferably with a few different people. And you have, I like doing this on your card. And you go around and you swap your cards <laughs> with other people, you know, to kind of get the best yeah. hands that you can get that, that you feel motivated yeah. by. What you don't know and you don't realize until the end of the game is that you then flip over your cards that has colors on the back of them. Mm. And so when I flipped over my, my colors, I had a huge amount of yellow, which was people. And I had a, quite a lot of green, which was creativity. I had a bit of blue, which was kind of a ch- goal orientation and, and, and achieving. And I had no red cards. And the red cards were the process and operations piece. Mm. And I thought, oh, okay, that's a really big imbalance, <laughs> right? That's a really big imbalance. I mean, I can be proud that I've got all of this yeah. yellow and green. That's lovely. And that does resonate with who I feel yeah. as a person. But I can't be an effective leader if I've got this massive hole. So that card game kind of woke me up. And so that's exactly true. That's such a good moment of clarity and realization. Yeah. And it was interesting because at the time I was building a team for the, for the startup, for the financial video startup. And I was having to work out how was I was going to build the team. And there was a woman who um, had applied for one of the jobs on the team. And I suddenly realized she is the person that is all red yeah. and blue. Like I need Karen on my team right now. <laughs> and it was like, it was such a good dynamic duo, right? Because, oh, absolutely. You know, she, she loved doing the stuff that was the operation, the execution, but didn't really like doing the vision and the people. I loved doing the vision and the people, but wasn't so keen on the execution. Yeah. So I think we both learned from each other. And by being together in that team, it kind of really showed me that I have weaknesses, I have weak points and I have to, it's like, you know, it's like a muscle that you have to use. You know, it's very easy to walk around. Well, for those of us who are able-bodied, I find it easy to walk. Yeah. Those muscles are fine. I don't even have to think about which muscles I'm using. But if I want to lift up a really heavy box, I really have to think about which muscles I'm going to use. And so it's not dissimilar. When you're playing to weaknesses, you have to just build that muscle and it's going to take more effort and you're going to have to work more time to yeah. build that muscle 
but you need it in order to be balanced. Yeah, I also think I I totally agree, and it's quite interesting that you mentioned that and that we're talking about this now. I just recently redid one of these like strength personality tests that yeah. I did took last time six years ago, the Gallup Strength Finder that I always yeah. use in my man, my management and leadership classes, and I redid it because I felt like you know six years is a time when it's good to redo it, and when I did it six years ago. I had all of my major strengths in the like strategy and vision bucket. Mm -hmm. So quite yeah. similar to you, yeah, I'd yeah, say. Yeah, very similar. And hardly anything in like the execution and implementation bucket. And I very deliberately, I think also through, you know, the assignments that I had in the past years that have become way more entrepreneurial, that have become way more, well, if you don't build it, it's just not going to exist. Sure. And, you know, man navigating through a pandemic that basically threw all of us, I think, into this somehow entrepreneurial lifestyle. When I redid it a few days ago, I still had three like strong strategic elements there, but I had the like getting stuff done and getting stuff done with teams strengths very high up in Fantastic. that ranking. So I think it's also, and I'm telling the story because I think it's, People sometimes, when we hear this, well, you know, after you're like basically eight years old, you can change. I think mm. people sometimes get frustrated by that notion. And while I do agree that it's becoming harder to change as a grown up, I do think there is a way to use your strengths to get better at things that you're not naturally good at. You know, I totally agree with you, Anita, on that. And I, I was reading something just the other day, actually, about how frustrating colleagues and, and, and direct reports find it when a leader says, well, that's just who I am. And I thought, oh, that's so true. I've had that in my life, right? Where I've had a leader, I've had a manager who has said to me, oh, well, that, that's, how I, that's just how I am. Yeah. And you're like, well, but that's not good enough. It's not good enough just to say, well, this is my personality and you have yeah. to deal with it. Like our personalities are wonderful gifts, right? Like each one of us is different. Each one of us has a different personality fingerprint but it's up to you then what you do with that yeah and I think that too many people use the well that's just my personality as an excuse for bad behavior or frankly mm. as an excuse for kind of lazy behavior yeah and that's that's just not leadership right leadership is a privilege and it's a massive responsibility and you have to do a lot of work on yourself to lead and to earn and deserve the respect and the following of your teams. Yeah. So I think it's, it's really brilliant. You're inspiring me to redo that card game. <laughs> you should, because honestly, you know? I was surprised. I mean, I, I, in hindsight, you know, looking at what I did in these past like six, seven years, obviously there was a lot of building things that haven't existed before and kind of being the person, you know, assembling a team and doing all of that. But yeah. it's quite interesting to see how that, you know, how that builds up over time. And I think it's kind of a nice reminder that while, you know, I'll never be just like you said, I'll never be the person who gets most excited about processes and about execution and operations. I can use my strategic mindset and my visionary strengths to actually know when I really have to focus on operations for a day to get stuff done. So I think it's more about kind of probably it's also about starting to, you know, get to know yourself better as mm -hmm. a leader, right? Yeah. I think that's also something that comes at a certain point of one's career that, you know, you start to understand things about you that you didn't understand before. And I bet you had those moments as well. 
that's absolutely right. And I think that's why I really encourage people not to be afraid of taking a risk in their own career and trying something different. Because I think if it's in, a, in something like journalism, it's so fun being a reporter, right? I mean, it's a calling. You often get people in newsrooms who mm. just feel like, but I am a journalist. It's my identity. And they don't ever want to do anything else apart yeah. from journalism. And that's fine if, if you're happy with that. But I think I've learned so much. It sounds like you have as well. I've learned more about myself and my strengths and my weaknesses and my impact and the difficulties and things by changing jobs and by getting into those stretch roles. Yeah. Yeah. You know, where you feel a bit at sea, you have no idea kind of what next Tuesday is going to bring, but actually in a way you have to then learn new skills. You have to work those new muscles, you know, and you learn more about yourself. And I think that's an incredibly rich journey, mm. whether it's about your career, or it's just about your life and yeah. who you are as a human being. So let's talk a little bit about that. I think consistent stretch assignment of yours of like creating your job in a way as you go, because mm. I mean, whatever life basically throws at you and your organization can potentially become a new service product yeah. or need, right? I mean, mm -hmm. AI, um, <laughs> visuals, yeah. the focus on like new products, new audiences, every year is, is different. How do you keep that spirit? Because I can also even for you as someone who enjoys and thrives in that, like dealing with new things, I can imagine that the pace of change that is happening in the industry is just sometimes quite exhausting or yeah. overwhelming, right? Yeah. That the, the, the amount of things you need to juggle in parallel at the same time. Yeah. And sometimes things which are in direct conflict with each other. Yes. Right? So like even at the moment, you know, out there in the media industry, it's not like very many people who are making huge amounts of money. It's a really difficult time in the industry, but then just look outside. It's just a difficult time economically out there, you know? So we're having to think very hard about, well, you know, and, and also from a news point of view, you're having to cover in a company like Reuters, mm. where we've got people in 160 countries around the world, but we've got two wars that we're having to cover at the moment. We're having to try and keep people safe physically and mentally and emotionally safe, covering really difficult, hard and ongoing stories. Um, so you've got all of these problems, whether it's financial, security, stories, mental health, well-being, et cetera, that you're having to spend money on. You, yeah. you know, it's just, it's a, it feels like a, a constant black hole that you're chucking money yeah. into. But at the same time, AI is this huge new, both potential opportunity and threat that you have yeah. to be investing in. So the two things yeah. are always in conflict with each other. And so it does feel exhausting sometimes, honestly. And I mean, there've been times where you're pushing for change and even as you're changing, the, the playing field is changing around you, right? So you're, so yeah. that you're aiming at that goal and then all of a sudden the goalposts shift around there and you're still running, but now you have to run mm. like double the distance. So you don't know if you're going to ever reach it. And so it can both be very exhausting and it can be very demoralizing sometimes, right? So let's, let's not be too Pollyanna-ish about it. Yeah. You know, I think there've been times in my career and in the career of many others that, that I know who are in similar sorts of roles where you think it's just, I'm one day off burning out. I'm one day off giving up. I'm one day off just running out that the tank is so empty. I'm mm. just going to run dry and lie in bed all day and cry. 
And then there are other days where you're just like, what a privilege. (laughs) Yeah, and how exciting. I get to be on the the cutting edge. I got to be on the forefront. And yes, it keeps on changing. You know, at the moment with AI, I mean, I was was off for a week and I came back and I was like, oh my gosh, I I feel like I'm (laughs) having to start again because so much has changed even in a week, you know? Yeah. And so I think it's, I think you have to, you have to realize um, that you can't do everything all the time Hmm. and that you have to, and I'm really bad at this. This has been a lesson I'm still learning, to be honest. Ruthlessly prioritize. Yeah. Ruthlessly prioritize. Delegate. You know, it's, it's all the basic things of management, right? But it's like, yeah. what, am, what, does, what do I, Jane, need to spend my time on? And now what can I delegate to other people in my team, other parts of the business? How can I ask for help from different parts of the business or from people outside of Reuters and, and in the journalistic community? you know, just friends and family. Like how, how can I, how can I best make sure that I'm still able to bring my best to this job, do what I can do and not get myself too flustered or ground down by the fact that there's just so much on. So So how do you do that? How do you, do you have any routines or anything that you're doing on a regular basis that helps you with that refocus and prioritization? So I've done something now that I never thought I'd be able to do, but part of it is because I'm not on the daily file, right? In my job, I'm thinking about innovation. So I rigorously take a day off every week. Mm. And on a Sunday, I read the paper, but I read the paper as a consumer. I don't read as a journalist. I don't read thinking, oh, I've got to do that story, that story, whatever. And I just take a day and I don't have my laptop open I try and look at my phone as little as I possibly can. And we're all addicted to the damn thing, but I look at it as little as I possibly can. And I get out and I look at the trees and I see friends and I go out for a nice lunch or I see family or I just sit with my husband and watch a movie or he loves watching sport at the weekend. So sometimes I just join him watching sport. But, you know, I make sure I rest. And that's made such a huge difference. It's such a basic thing, isn't it? Like just take a day off Mm. But I think in the world of journalism and in the world of management, we're very bad at doing it because we think that it's too important. What we do is too important. Mm. We can't possibly ever stop. But I found that that rhythm has massively, massively, massively helped me maintain the enthusiasm rather than heading towards the burnout. Absolutely. And I do think, uh, well, obviously on one, on one hand, it's absolutely important for you yourself as, as a leader to keep that resilience, to keep going. But what I also find is that we sometimes as leaders, we underestimate the impact our well-being yes. has uh, on our teams or on our peers. So if you're totally stressed out and you're the person who's supposed to bring kind of a stable, will get their perspective into the organization that's just not in alignment, right? If the person who is, who's hired to figure out the future is just basically like freaking out, that does not send (laughs) a total signal of confidence, right? And I, I do feel, I experienced that sometimes with, with leaders and managers where I felt like, Hey, you better like take a day off and take a walk in the park because the signals that you're sending are basically making everyone else very scared yes. of what's coming. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, you know, one of the changes that we've all lived through, and you mentioned it a bit earlier, was 
the sudden change that was forced upon us by COVID. And I found that so challenging in a way that I've lived through lots of change. I've led lots of change, but that was the change that was forced upon me. I therefore really struggled to cope with. I couldn't kind of find my balance again. Yeah. It took me, it took me several weeks. I mean, like several weeks into the months, you know, to work out. Yeah. Okay. This is a new, this is a new way of doing things. This is how to do things. And I think part of it was because as you looked around, there was no one. We we looked to our political leaders. We looked to our Mm. business leaders. We looked to our religious leaders. We looked to our family leaders, whoever it was. And everyone was panicking. Yeah. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And then actually, I think what turned it around for me was was speaking to a friend of mine who's a, a leader in a totally, totally different industry. And she was just rigorous about this is what we're aiming to do. This is our goal. This is our vision. Yeah. For the time being, everything else needs to stop. And we just all need to get around this one thing. If we can do this one thing right, we'll be fine. And she was not panicking. She was not trying to do everything. Yeah. She was, she was just saying there's enough panic out in the world. Yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, she said, I'm panicking about keeping myself safe and my family safe and everything. So that can be my panic. I'm not panicking at work. We are just doing this thing. And I came away from that conversation, finally feeling that's the leadership I need. And that's the leadership I need to project to my teams as well. I've just like, there's so much that we need to panic about. You panic about whatever you need to panic about in your area. Don't let work be a panic. This is what we're doing. Yeah. Yeah. It was really interesting. Just totally learning that lesson, right? There's something so incredibly calming almost and uh, gratifying about watching a good leader do things in a quiet, consistent, focused, strategic way. Yes, exactly. And the impact it has on the team that they run is huge. Yeah. Just huge. Were you lucky enough throughout the course of your career to learn a lot from many good leaders? Were you, let's, I wouldn't say unlucky enough, but did you have the experience to learn from leadership where you said, well, that is not something I want to replicate. That's not something I want to do. Oh, very much so. Very, (laughs) very much so. I think what I, what I saw as I was coming, coming up through the sort of more junior levels and kind of middle levels was that there's no such thing as a perfect leader and there's no such thing mm. as a truly dreadful leader. Like we all, we all have our weak points. We all have our strong points. So I work for one person who I shall try and anonymize as much as possible so that they're not recognizable in this, but they were a fabulous journalist, fabulous, fabulous, fabulous journalist. So enthusiastic about the story and therefore drove everybody else mad <laughs> because they micromanaged everyone on the story because they knew the way it should be done. (laughs) But so again, it was always light and shade, light and shade. I'll I'll pick out just a few things that I got from good leaders and a few that I got some. When I was doing that um, financial video project, I worked with two fabulous, fabulous leaders. Yeah. Really great people who I would still go to now to get advice. Right. Hmm. And I was thinking about what they, what they taught me. And one was that they gave me autonomy. They said, you can do this. We've hired you because we believe that you can do this. So go and do it. And they gave me the autonomy, but then they also put the safety net underneath me. 
But if you, yeah. ever, if you ever have a question, yeah, I sit, you sit right next door to me, just ask the question. And you don't need to know everything, but you need to bring yourself. So autonomy, but with safety. That was one mm. really good thing. And so linked to that, great encouragement, regular check-ins, encouraging me, teaching me that, you know, I didn't have to have the answer to everything, but we could experiment. If it failed, it didn't matter. We, we were just trying things and, and, you know, to keep stretching, keep on stretching. So, so I think that was such a great, great lesson to get. So 10 years into my career, because that was quite a nice shift, right? From, from writing stories and reporting to actually starting to build things, to innovate, to transform and, and fundamentally to lead from bad leaders. <laughs> there was one guy, I, it always sticks in my mind. He overheard me speaking to one of my, one of my team and I apologized for getting something wrong. And he pulled me aside. He said, never apologize. It shows weakness. Oh my God. No, it doesn't. It shows strength to say, well, sorry. <laughs> like if you get something wrong and you then try and sort of cover up your tracks or you try and sort of style it out, <laughs> you know, yeah. from, it's, it loses people's respect so fast. Oh, absolutely. It, and then I started to watch his behavior and I realized, uh, I kind of see that he's a very proud man, but he's also massively lacking in self-esteem, hmm. bringing both of those things into the workplace. He hasn't, he hasn't got the maturity actually to kind of work out, yeah. you know, what, what's happening. And so I, I always own your mistakes always own your mistakes and apologize for them you know, learn from them learn together again you're, you're setting an example to your team if you don't say sorry what what are you teaching your team yeah absolutely and then the other one actually from from the from the manager who was a great journalist but but drove everyone mad for their micromanaging um is is to give people space to to make their own mistakes and to do things their way because you know it might just be better than your way you might think yeah. that you have it all pat and that you've got brilliant ideas. Maybe somebody else will do it better than you, you know? So yeah. like, listen and always be open to challenge, always be open to different ideas. Probably hard lessons for a micromanager. Yes, indeed. <laughs> listen, Jane, the, the, the interesting question, and I, I, I know we, we, we've talked about that, is, is the media industry particularly bad in deciding who should become a leader or who should move into a managerial role or not. Because while we are laughing mm -hmm. about these kind of extreme examples now, like my day is filled with conversations where people say, well, this actually happens to me on a daily basis. Um, and I, I'm not sure if I want to stay in this industry, if the person leading me sure. doesn't know the fundamentals of how to lead in a modern, empathetic, strategic, reflected way. Yeah. Are, we, are we still a mess when it comes to that? I've never worked in anything but media, so I can't really compare us to, <laughs> to <laughs> others, right? But just in terms of, I look out into the world and I look at the leadership that I see around me and I feel that it's not just media. I think there's a massive need for much better leadership, mm. uh, much better management generally. I think within journalism and within media, we have a, we have a slight impediment and it might be the same in things like, say, medicine and hospital management or something like that, which is that mm. people don't choose to be a journalist as any old job. They come into journalism usually yeah. from a position of a desire to do journalism, a passion to yeah. tell the truth, to shine the light in dark places. And it, it goes back to what I was saying earlier about it almost being part of your identity. Yeah. Anyone with a passion and a vision and 
that's a role is vocation tends to be quite an individual actor, right? Or at yeah. most, let's all work together to get this patient well. Let's all work together to get the story out. Mm-hmm. But with a goal that is an external goal, right? Yes. And so I think that the problem that we tend to have is that we have a lot of quite individualistic workers who then suddenly have to manage other people. Mm. And it's not natural. It's not a natural fit. Like how you manage yourself on a story is not how you manage somebody else. Yeah. And it's why I feel so passionately about middle management. You know, I feel that the role of a middle manager is the most crucial role in an organization because leaders will come and go. Strategies will change. The world will change around us. Companies will grow and shrink and whatever. That's, that's all true. But the middle managers who truly have to affect all of the change and all of the work and keep the train train on the tracks on a daily basis. And they have to deal with people all the time. And so I I sometimes think that in media, what we do is we say, oh, you've been around for a while. It's time to start managing. And it's like, maybe that person is just fundamentally not set up as a manager, you know? And so I think that we have that, we have this issue. And I think it's why it's so important to, um, almost dissect what management is and then dissect what leadership is. And they're two different things, of course, but to dissect it almost into some constituent parts so people can look at it almost from a journalistic point of view, kind of hold it and go, yeah. oh, that's interesting. Let me report out what I need to do. Yeah. You know, what, what's that? So that they kind of understand it and internalize it in a way that yeah. makes sense for them. Because if we lose people because of bad managers, then it's it's not just a great shame to our, our companies and to our industry, but I honestly believe to the world as well. Yeah. And we are losing people at a relatively record pace. And interestingly, you would think that in a time of crisis and you'd think that in a time of layoffs that people, the ones who are not laid off, are kind of holding on to their jobs. But what we are seeing is that there is particularly a younger generation, but it's somehow not totally limited to a generation who's just like, yeah, no, I'm not. If this is how you treat me, if this is what you offer me, if that's the deal, I'm not taking it anymore. I'm like done with it. Is that something that you experience in your surroundings as well? I was just about to say, let's look at the generational gaps as well, because I do think that this is something that... The problem of bad managers has always been there. And it was worse 20 years ago when I joined the newsroom, right? It was worse. Yeah. <laughs> um, there was no leadership yeah. training. There was no acknowledgement that management was an important thing. It was the years of the Dilbert cartoons and taking the mickey out of managers, you know. So let's let's hope at least that things have got better, but they're not there yet. But what has massively changed is that the millennial generation and our Gen Z are coming in with totally different expectations and a totally different feeling about what they want out of their career, not just what they're going to give to a company, but what they're going to get out of the company. And the culture is shifting, right? The culture of work is shifting Mm. because the generational cultures are shifting. And if you think about the difference between the boomer generation and Gen X, it was different. I mean, it was when we started to name generations, but the difference then to the digital native generation, to the social mobile native generation, now with Gen Alpha, I I keep thinking, are they going to be the AI generation, right? They've grown up with different experiences, a different milieu, a different expectation, different ways of communicating with each other, different norms. And that's the culture that's now 
you know, if not at 50-50, getting very close to 50 in terms of the, the people at work. Absolutely. And so I think it's incumbent on us as the leaders to recognize this culture change, to think, what is our culture? How do we think about our culture mm. now? What what behaviors or processes or, or ways of working are so fundamentally important to journalism that they can't change? And what mm. actually can change while not affecting that journalism? Yeah. And it's interesting to see that, that this is like an emotional topic, right? I kind of feel the tension in that conversation because I feel some of these, and I agree completely with you, that it's, that, you know, the duty almost that we have is to also question some of the, this is how we've been doing things for years. It's just not a good enough answer anymore. Like, oh, but that's how we did it in the past. Yeah. And also, frankly, the younger generation is much, they live in a much more precarious financial situation than, than their bosses. Yeah. You know, we had somebody retired the other day on uh, you know, one of the last people to leave on a final salary pension, you know, and the people that he's editing can't even imagine to own a house, yeah. right? Because, or, you know, even to own a Absolutely. with a friend, yeah. you know, it's like the precariousness is, is, is horrible, but therefore also there's the entrepreneurialism that we were talking about earlier of, well, I'm going to do this and I'm going to have a gig on the side or, well, I'm going to do yeah. this, but actually my gig's now growing and I can move into that. Or a friend of mine just made this change and is earning more money. I'm, I can do that. So there's a lot more, there's a, a much more entrepreneurial spirit, I think. Much more, well, I've absolutely. got to do what's right for me spirit. More of mobility, mobility, mobility as well in every yeah. way. So if you're not good enough as a company, if you're not good enough as a manager, it's not, you know, there will be other options because they have a very different yeah. view of what an option is from the old generation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we're nearly at the end of our conversation, even I though I could have continued <laughs> um, that conversation forever. But I'd love to end on the question that I always ask my guests um, at the end. And I'd, I'd love to ask you, Jane, if you could go back in time to young Jane, basically doing her first job, her first internship, entering the workplace, what piece of advice about career, about life, about jobs, about leadership would you give to yourself? Well, I think, I think probably the advice I would give, I hopefully have also given some pointers during this chat as to how then to deal with them. But I would say two things. One, you can go much further than you think you can, right? I think as a female leader in the you know, early 21st century, uh, imposter syndrome is real. <laughs> you know, I don't like the word imposter syndrome. I hate it, in fact, but there is, there is the, the feeling, feel, the feeling is, real. is real. And so uh, the first thing would be, you can go much further than you think you can. And other people actually believe that you can go further even than you believe, you know, that you, that you might be able to. But second thing, don't feel that you have to do it alone. I'm such a people pleaser. I always want to be able to do things perfectly myself without any help and say, oh, look, I've done my homework really well. Aren't I very good? Please give me an A star, you know? And it's, that's just, just not the reality. You can't be good at everything. And yeah. so I think I would say, you know, be brave, aim high, but build good teams around you because that's the only way that you're going to get there. And then that way you also bring the team up with you. I loved it so much. Beautiful advice, Jane, and uh, beautiful words. And thank you so much for being here with me today. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. And as you say, could have talked all afternoon. <laughs> Thanks, Jane.
This was today's episode of Better Leaders. If you enjoyed it, please do follow us and subscribe. Thanks for listening. Missing Link.